Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Bethan and as I mentioned last week we will have Mark back with us next week for our season finale of Seeing Red season 9. Um, he's been really poorly but he is much better so we're hoping to have him back next week and I'm just going to quickly say a huge thank you to our most recent Patreon supporters and then we've got a pre-recorded episode for you with both of us so I'm sure you'll be very pleased to hear that. So a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters who are Chrissy S, Gemma Parker Sheridan and Imogen Gilbert. Thank you so much guys and if you'd like to join these guys and all of our other Patreon supporters please head to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. So enough of me, let's crack on with the show. week we are doing something we have only done once before. We're going to be re-recording an episode from years ago. We re-recorded the case of Elaine O'Hara with updates that have come out since and with more information about the case. This time, Mark, we're going to be revisiting a case from way back in season one, the murder of Jodie Jones, but for a different reason. Oh, I'm intrigued because I don't, I don't even know what the reason is. Yeah, so ever since we first released our episode about Jodie's murder and we discussed Luke Mitchell, who was convicted of her murder, this case has split opinions. Since we released the episode almost five years ago, we have had numerous people get in touch to tell us that we are wrong. This is a huge miscarriage of justice. Luke Mitchell was wrongly convicted. We even had Sandra Lean, who told us she was part of Luke's actual legal team, get in touch, and she did offer to send documentation about the truth, but nothing really happened around that. Now, I do feel it's important to highlight miscarriages of justice for many reasons. Highlight the plight of the wrongly accused, to remind society that there was a victim at the beginning who often doesn't get any justice or no justice for a long time. This is a topic I've returned to time and time again, and it's something that really gets to me. When we first covered the case, it was our eighth episode ever. Now, I don't want people to think I'm trying to justify myself, and I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to apologise for the fact that the script was a lot less polished than the episodes we produce now. But I kind of wanted to remind people of that. We had not been podcasting long. We were trying to find our feet. And I can put my hands up and say I definitely didn't do the sort of research into this case that I would have done if I'd have written the case up last month, this week, you know, it just, I now look back and think I could have done more. I, th- I think we, um, I don't know, we, we talk about it quite a bit, don't we? Those early days or weeks or months of the podcast. And we've both learnt lots. And certainly in terms of the research and the scripts that we put together now are far superior to what we would have had five years ago. I 100% agree. That being said, I probably do still think that Luke was guilty weirdly, even revisiting this um, as an episode to look at in a more unbiased way. It's an unpopular opinion. I'm I'm sure I'll get people telling me, no, you're still wrong, but it's an opinion. I'm never, though, going to be afraid to revisit my opinions and think about whether I could be wrong. 
researching this again has made me doubt things a little bit more. I think when we first recorded this, I very much went on, what are the facts, in inverted commas, but what are the facts from the media? Here's the information, done. What I would say is that I did mention some of the elements that pointed perhaps towards him not being guilty, but I definitely took it just on face value from the media. And in five years, we have really, really seen, haven't we? We've really seen that the media aren't always truthful. Yeah, or it's it's not even that they're not necessarily truthful with everything. They've just got a slight angle on certain or things. Always or they're biased. Sometimes, yeah. you know, not with this so much, but other times there are restrictions around certain things. So the sentencing remarks, when we read the sentencing remarks that a judge will uh, go through when they're sentencing somebody, having convicted them, having had a jury convict them. Quite often on those sentencing remarks, it will say, you know, you cannot talk about this or this. You, you know, even though I'm going to name certain people in these remarks, you cannot mention their names in podcasting, in newspapers, on TV, whatever. So there's still, yeah, there's still restrictions in place as well. But this, I just wanted to say before you go any further, Beth, and this has been. I think probably the most polarising case that we've ever covered. I remember seeing messages, comments constantly popping up uh, after we put this episode out of quite, I would say, quite abusive from people. And that's it, isn't it? When people really feel strongly. Yeah, it's, um, I'm kind of really interested to see what, what you've got to say on this, Beth, and having revisited it. And I'm just hopeful that we don't get a barrage of further abusive comments and messages. I don't think we we shouldn't because ultimately it doesn't matter what my opinion is, doesn't matter what your opinion is. It's the facts that we bring to the podcast and then we share with our listeners. You guys, your listeners, you can make your own minds up just like myself and Mark. And as we saw recently in the shooting of Shamsuddin Mahmood, we actually disagree, don't we, about whether or not someone's guilty or not. You know, you were kind of like Michael Ross is guilty. I think he's innocent. It doesn't really matter, but hopefully anybody who does feel strongly about Luke Mitchell and his innocence, or even Luke Mitchell and his guilt, will feel that this is a more more rounded episode now, and hopefully a better a better telling of Jodie's story. Because that's what I want to really remember, is that Jodie was a young girl who was murdered. That's major. Her, her memory should be respected. So this week, in a two-part special, we will be revisiting this case. I'm going to use my original script, but expand on the case and bring more information out within the episode. So join us as we head back to season one, but also back to 2003, and we head to East Houses in Midlothian in Scotland. But before we begin, we're going to hear from this week's show sponsor. Midlothian is a historic county in the East Central Lowlands, bordering the City of Edinburgh Council area, East Lothian and the Scottish Borders. East Houses is the area where Jodie Jones lived with her family. It is a settlement in Midlothian and is linked with nearby Mayfield and the two communities have a combined population of around 7,900. New Battle is nearby and this is the area in which Luke Mitchell lived. Looking on Google Maps, it looks like many other British towns. It's pretty standard to be honest. It's kind of When I was looking at the pictures, it just looked like a normal place to live. From the size of the areas, I assume they have quite a small town feel. People would generally know one another. And both Jodie and Luke went to St David's Roman Catholic School, which looks to be about a seven to ten minute drive from East Houses and New Battle. Back then, I didn't tend to do my Google Maps searching when we first released this. 
don't think I even really looked on Google Maps, but I really enjoy doing that nowadays. I know, that's a signature Bethan move. It is. I love to have a little look at people's houses. I, do you know, sometimes when I've been on Google Earth, is it Google Earth? The one where you kind of, yeah. the street view, and you can yeah. pretty much see into people's houses on that through windows and stuff. It's quite shocking, isn't it? I always want to know when you see the houses that have been blurred out and I'm like, ooh, what's that person? Why is that person chosen to do that? Well, usually because they're a celebrity or Tony Blair's house on Connaught Square's blurred out in London. You can see that. You can sort of, yeah, there's there's lots of houses that are blurred out for a reason. Or true crime. Sometimes if there's like been a murder, it's a famous house. Yeah, Like infamous, I should say, not famous. Mm. Yeah. Jodie Jones was born in 1989 in East Houses and was the youngest of three children born to James and Judy Jones, who both worked for Royal Mail. Jodie was described as a bright, level-headed and headstrong child who displayed a flair for painting and poetry and who was particularly close with her older sister Janine. Jodie was described as five foot seven with shoulder-length brown hair, but she had recently begun dyeing it reds and purples. She wore glasses and she dressed in what I would call a goth sort of style, basically. Kind of slightly alternative, a bit different. She listened to rock music, loved the band Nirvana and was a good student. According to reports, and of course people always say nice things after someone passes away, but according to reports she was a good student, didn't really skip school. And looking at photos of her, I said at the time, and I'll say again, she really does remind me of that age. And give or take a few months, we would have been the same age at this point. And I think that's always really, it kind of hits home more, I think, with cases when you've got something where you can link yourself to somebody. Yeah, I do remember you saying originally, so that would be literally nearly five years ago now, that she did remind you of you at that age and that kind of alternative look and into the same kind of music. So yeah. yeah, I think that's potentially another reason why this case has stayed with you because we've talked about it together, mm-hmm. usually instigated by you. And it's it's not left us for five solid years. Frequently yeah. it comes up, it comes up and it's talked about by us. And we do remember Jody, and that's what I remember mostly from this. I don't remember the whole Luke Mitchell stuff or the controversy surrounding his guilt or innocence. I, I remember Jody and and yeah, how she was just finding herself at that age like so many teenage girls do and experimenting with makeup and hairstyles and becoming a young woman. Yeah. Something I don't think I noticed at the time of first research in this case is how Kardashian-like this family are. So James and Judy named their children Jodie and her sister also had a J and her brother had a J. I love it when families do that though. Isn't that fun? I wish I thought to do something like that. Should have married someone with a B as their name instead of someone with a C. At the time of this case, Jodie lived with her mum, her sister and her brother and they lived near to her grandmother's house. In 1998, Jodie's dad actually took his own life and his death caused great distress to the family. Judy gave up work to look after the children. At one point, Jodie's sister had moved in with the grandmother. Five years on from this, all three children were back in the home and the family were very close and they'd been really drawn together by this tragedy. As a teenager, Jodie developed a streak of rebellion and developed the style that I mentioned earlier, dyeing her hair. And by age 14, she was also known to have experimented with marijuana and alcohol. When she first entered into a relationship with Luke Mitchell, she kept it a secret from her family, confiding only in her sister. But her sister, being 19, did inform their mum. So Luke then did meet Jodie's mum in May 2003. Luke Mitchell was born on the 24th of July in 1988 and was the younger of two children. 
His parents separated when he was 11 and he was raised by his mother Corinne in New Battle. He grew up in quite a normal family home and Colin, who recommended this case way back at the very beginning. Colin, do you still listen? I hope That was do. my exact question. Does he still listen? Yeah, I hope so. But Colin described the area when he was talking about this as quite a middle class area. Luke had a number of hobbies, including music, riding horses, riding motorbikes. He was considered a good pupil, although one teacher is known to have expressed concern about the violence that he'd written in an essay. And something that we discussed when we first talked about this case is that Luke's relationship with his mum has been described as a little bit too close and that his brother was jealous of the pair. So Luke's mum had taken him to get his first tattoo, pretending he was 18 when he was actually about 12 or 13. And apparently Luke's brother felt like an outsider. This is often mentioned and discussed, this too close nature of their relationship. But now when I look at it, there's nothing specific or tangible about this. And the way that I see it now really is a mum defending her son and protecting her son. And I think when I first researched this, I probably took that too much on face value. This They're too close. Mm. What is too close really? She was a mum that was just doing stuff for her son. I, I, I completely get it. I think it's, you know, that's kind of weird for me to think. It must be weird for you to think that when you initially researched wrote this up and we recorded it you weren't a mum and now you're a mum to two girls that's really weird isn't it I didn't think of that you know just in that short space of time your whole life has changed and it does give you a different perspective and outlook I'm sure um I I do understand what you're saying yeah is too much love ever too much um however I think when there is another sibling what's at play here maybe is potentially that one child is favoured over another or that's the perception. So that's an issue if one child is perceived to be loved more than the other or treated more specially or better, that's an issue or loved more. But Hmm. yeah, I don't agree that you can love somebody too much. I think it's kind of boundless. So I'm very disturbed that she took him to get a tattoo at 12 or 13. Very disturbed. I I do wonder, sort of looking at this, and this is purely just my kind of my imagine, probably my imagination getting away with me. But I wondered maybe he's the younger, more maybe more affected by the breakup of the mum and dad's relationship. Maybe she's overcompensating. Maybe it was something like that. Maybe there was. Maybe that's why she did more that you would expect a parent not to do because she was trying to help him through that i just i don't know but you can have two two kids that are completely different one could be very sensitive one could be very independent and you would have to parent each child in different ways if you're capable of tailoring your approach and that might mean that one child does need more attention so yeah i think we've probably both got a lot more perspective on it now it's interesting how just in that short space of time five years isn't that long how we can see it quite differently both of us And Luke was a bit of a goth into rock music and obsessed with serial killers. I said at the time, and I'll say it again, it does bother me when people try and say that someone committed a crime due to their interest in true crime. We're reporting on this and people are listening to our show and we're not murderers. So that really did annoy me at the time and it still annoys me. But this was a key part to the case. This is the way that Luke was described in the media. There were other things. He was painted as a bit of a weirdo. He was obsessed with musician Marilyn Manson. That's not strange. It was 2003. Marilyn Manson was pretty massive. He smoked a lot of weed. Not that uncommon. And it's, sorry, but not the worst thing in the world of drugs either. It, it, he's a teenager. Some things were more extreme, however. 
Luke was known for carrying a knife. He would use it as a threat whilst he was dealing drugs. There was anecdotal evidence that he'd held a knife to an old girlfriend's throat during an argument. He had also apparently carved the number 666 into himself. He'd write stuff all over his school books about satanic things and his music taste. He'd stub cigarettes out on himself. His behaviour was bizarre. He was absolutely acting out. But is he not just a 14-year-old bit of a weird kid that's trying to find his way in the world? I would say some of this, yeah. Uh, some of it, no. So the obsession with Marilyn Manson, completely normal for, for a child of that age, a boy in particular. The obsession with true crime, that's not necessarily about the gory aspect of it. That could be very much the kind of psychology of perpetrators and why people do things that they do. But then the dealing drugs, you know, that's uh, not good. Carrying a knife, carving... Um, 666 into himself as a form of self-harm and yeah there's some really concerning things here like stubbing cigarettes out on himself reminds me of a girl I used to sit next to in primary school Karis who used to eat pencils and even as about a seven-year-old boy I knew that was weird and that she was disturbed I hope she's okay now oh gosh I hope so that seems yeah that seems horrible splinters in your tongue and like oh and I remember recording bits about some of the things that he'd done where he talked about um, following the teachings of Satan. And I think it's interesting because I went to a Catholic school. There were some of us who dressed in like more alternative styles when we talked about Sophie and Robert's story in the murder of Sophie Lancaster's story. We talked about that, about how it's just a lot of people do that. It's not that unusual. Um but he'd kind of mentioned that he was into Satanism and devil worship. So that, that does go that little bit further. But again, I now look at it and I think, was he just a 14-year-old who was trying to say stuff that was going to shock people? And and doesn't it make a great story with what, what goes on to happen? This is, exactly. you know, this is just fodder for the tabloid press. Really? And our case takes place in June 2003. Luke and Jodie had been going out since March that year, so a few months. The pair were both 14 years old, but Luke was in the school year above Jodie, and they had what sounds like a pretty standard relationship for that age. They spent time listening to the bands that they both liked. They hung out in groups or alone, spent time at each other's houses. They also smoked weed together, which is not so, you know, standard for everybody, but isn't particularly unexpected. Um, And they were in a sexual relationship. Jodie wrote in her diaries that she was in love with Luke. One of her diary entries actually said, I think I am actually in love with Luke. Not in a stupid way, I mean real love. God, I think I would die if he finished with me. It's really dramatic and that way that just teenage romance is just the end of everything, isn't it? It's just the beyond. Yeah, it can feel so really, really strong feelings. I'd never diminish any of those feelings because of the age. If anything, I would say they they are more intense feelings at that age than they are in adulthood. The pair often met up with one of them heading over to the other's house along a stretch of woodland to meet the other person. So that area is known as Roan's Dyke Path. This cut through made the walk a 15 minute one rather than 45 minutes. And it is a well-known spot for dog walkers and ramblers. It is rather secluded. So Jodie's mum wasn't totally happy about her using the cut through. I read somewhere that Jodie's mum actually preferred Luke to come and meet her and that they'd walk back together where possible. Um, and I've had a look, again, done a little bit Googling, but having a look at Google Maps, it, it doesn't look like it's somewhere that nobody would walk. It's clearly a popular walking along spot. The area where 
our case will focus on is an area where a lot of teenagers would go to hang out as well. So whilst her mum wouldn't have been very happy about that, I think to Jodie and to Luke, it would have been, well, obviously I'm going to go that way. I wouldn't go a different way. I am disappointed that you've not included a screen grab from Google Maps. Oh, sorry, Mark. I should have put a little screenshot in for you. You did go on to do this all those years later. And Bethan would almost... For the benefit of our listeners, sometimes sometimes Bethan almost presents the case to me like she's doing a presentation to a board of directors and there are uh, (laughs) photos and arrows at different bits of it and it's amazing. When I was away from the show because I had Evie you presented my episode with the two murders in Glasgow that I'd written and I remember putting loads of images because I really wanted to get you into the mindset of where I was of like what the buildings looked like I love all of that in Jodie's diaries Jodie wrote that she loved Luke but sadly Luke was actually seeing another girl apparently neither Jodie nor the other girl knew about one another and this was someone he'd either met on holiday or who lived away and they'd meet in the school holidays but he was apparently seeing this other person and in the weeks immediately before she was murdered Jodie's mum had found out about the pair smoking weed and had grounded Jodie so something that came out after the episode originally as well is that a fact that this isn't a totally well-used phrase. So just to give some context to anybody who didn't have grounding as a punishment, it kind of means that you have to be home for certain times, you have a curfew. She was probably not allowed to see her friends outside of school. She might have had her mobile phone taken away from her, probably only allowed to do things out of the home as a family. And my parents would sometimes revoke TV time as part of a grounding punishment as well. If you were grounded, you couldn't watch the telly or something like that. So um, hopefully that explains it a little bit more for people. Did you ever get grounded, Mark? Was that a thing that your parents ever used as a punishment? No, uh, it was a bit like being put on a tag, I imagine, in the modern day equivalent, being on out on licence. Uh, no, I was never grounded. I My parents were quite relaxed about, you know, lots of things, and I was very well behaved, to be fair. Um, so no, they were very, they treated me like a young adult, really. So no. I do imagine you as a child that's like actually just an adult already. (laughs) My mum always said you're too mature for your age and that's probably why I had no friends at school, to be fair. Oh no, don't start saying stuff like this, Mark. Oh no, I'm over it now. I just sit in the corner and read The Sun uh, or another paper uh, that I'd go on to learn that The (laughs) Sun was not a good newspaper. Uh, but at that time I didn't know any better at 15, but yeah, I just, yeah, no, it's, um, I'm shocked that that's not common and that people don't really know what grounding is. I thought that was a, a well-known punishment for children. Maybe it's quite a British thing though. Maybe yeah, that's could why. Be. On the 30th of June, 2003, after just a normal Monday at school, Jodie was told by her mum that she was no longer grounded. So she was allowed to go and see her boyfriend. She left the family home at about five o'clock in the evening after agreeing to a 10pm curfew. Jodie asked her mum to keep some dinner for her for her return. So Jodie had gone out about five o'clock that evening, said she'd meet Luke and told her mum all her plans. When Jodie hadn't returned for her curfew, her mum began to get worried. Probably more annoyed than worried at first, to be honest. Luke, on the other hand, was not worried. He said, yes, the pair had been texting one another and Jodie had said she'd planned to head over to his house. But when he heard nothing and she didn't show up, he didn't really think much of it. When he received a message from Judy telling him to tell Jodie she's missed her curfew, he responded saying that she hadn't been there, she hadn't been round, and that yes, they had been messaging, but when she didn't show, he'd assumed that she was still grounded or she'd been grounded again or something like that, so he went out with his friends. Now, this was a huge shock to Judy. 
Jodie had left five hours previously. The walk should have taken 15 minutes. Judy called the police to report her daughter missing and at about 11pm a search party was assembled. Jodie's family and friends and worried locals went out to retrace her steps. Luke joined, he brought his dog. There was a large police presence and the group set off in the dark. Sadly, shortly before midnight, Jodie's body was found. Luke's dog had led the searchers in the group that he was in to an area behind a wall, hidden from view of anyone walking past. But Luke and some others climbed over the wall and found the horrific sight of Jodie, who had been murdered. When Jodie was discovered, she was partially dressed and her wrists were bound. The other items of clothing that she had been wearing when she left her house were strewn around the area of the woods where her body was and she had clearly suffered a violent and savage attack. Reports have stated that she put up a struggle. She really fought for her life, and the attack was described as frenzied. Detective Superintendent Craig Dobble said that this is one of the most violent crimes I have ever experienced in my 28 years as a police officer. There was no indication as to why Jodie had been targeted. The police stated that some sort of knife had been used, and that the attacker had hit her on the head, on the body and had compressed her throat, which had choked her to death. She had also been stabbed repeatedly before and after death in her face, her ears, her mouth, her breasts and her abdomen. It had been a truly vicious attack. Jodie had not been sexually assaulted. Frustratingly, almost immediately, there were errors made in the handling of the crime scene. The first forensics officer who arrived on the scene had a bad back and couldn't climb over the wall to get to the scene. The police also left the scene uncovered overnight, the first night when Jodie had been found. They moved her body and put her onto a plastic sheet and then left her so she was open to the elements and it rained. So there could have been all manner of evidence that was destroyed. But also just just how undignified is that? Yeah, like they covered her in in a sheet as well, but not... They hadn't managed to put up um, like a tent or anything, I don't believe, from what I've read. the There's a lot that's been, I think we'll probably go on to it, but a lot was said about how, where it rained, anything that had potentially been under her body or pulled under her body would have been then washed off the sheep from the rain because it's plastic. And also things like footprints and just other DNA evidence uh, yeah. would have potentially been washed away. But what what's occur- occurring to me now is that it's quite normal to have a search party assembled that would consist of family and friends and locals within the community, as well as potentially dozens of police officers. That's quite normal when a child has gone missing. But now I'm kind of thinking about it. And Luke has discovered that body with other people there. So he's at the crime scene, what is now a crime scene. His footprints are there, other people's are too. So the water's become very muddied very quickly when that happens, when there is a a big search party and a a member of the public, and not just the public, but potentially family, friends, somebody from that community has has found the body um, because they could have been the perpetrator and now that's a way of sort of disproving that they were involved. Well, of course my footprints are there, of course my DNA's there. That's not going to stand up in a court of law. You know, I was there, I discovered the body, we were part of a search team. So that's exactly. a really difficult thing because the police need those bodies, uh, you know, on foot to uh, look for this person, but equally it's going to fuck up the crime scene. This was a small community and the shocking attack absolutely rocked the locals. A neighbour said, I have two kids of my own and for something to happen like this, it's quite shocking. It was the school holidays coming up 
within about two weeks and a violent killer was on the loose. Locals were worried that if nothing was sorted out right away, there could be a six-week summer holiday where kids were not allowed to go out and play, parents would be just too scared to let their kids out and play, and the lack of motive was what was so scary. No one expected Jodie to have been a target. Nobody could understand why she'd been attacked. The police were on the case right away, appealing through the press for everyone to come forward if they had seen anything. It was the sort of place with dog walkers going through often, and a lot of people did see things and spoke up. The police said that the attacker would have been covered in blood and asked the public if you saw anyone who looked a mess or acting suspiciously, you know, burning clothes or something, please come forward. So they had 140 calls from the public in the first 24 hours, people giving informational sightings. There were no sightings of the killer, though. So the police were able to narrow down the time frame and work out that Jodie had been killed between 5.30 and 8pm, down to the fact that outside of these times, people had walked through without spotting anything out of the ordinary. Luke was looked into initially, and he gave his alibi that he was at home with his brother. And the whole town put down tributes and flowers. The head teacher from Jodie's school said really lovely things about Jodie. There were two services in her memory while school was still open. They planned a memorial for afterwards as well. But no children were walking to school to go to the services. They were going in groups or by bus. Their parents might have taken them. There were police at the school gates giving advice and talking to people. It was, from what I've read, the whole town just was on just on alert and on edge but it's it's understandable isn't it because for all you know there's a this is the start of a, a serial killing spree there is a serial killer on the yeah, loose potentially exactly. and you just don't know who's going to be next so yeah i can imagine that level of fear within that community there was a team of 40 officers doing door to doors and investigating and they really wanted to find the weapon that was kind of the main thing there was such a lack of forensics and that made the investigation really difficult and there were delays too so the first forensics officer couldn't climb the wall the scene was then left exposed to the elements before it could be worked also bins nearby had been emptied by the council before police could stop them and the weapon could have been in any of those bins it could be gone forever the police announced that the evidence pointed to the motive being the one that was personal, so someone who was upset or afraid or angry at the time of the attack, and that it was likely to have happened in the spur of the moment. They advised that the perpetrator would now be acting in a disturbed manner. The investigation continued and the police did a reconstruction which was shown on numerous occasions to try and jog people's memories. They set up roadblocks questioning motorists about whether they had been in the area at the time, whether they'd seen or known anything. And the police continued to question Luke, which is normal since he was her boyfriend. They knew that he knew she was due to walk that route and also because he'd found her body. He was released and not charged every single time they questioned him. And there is a lot of controversy around the fact that when Luke was questioned, he did not have a lawyer present. When the police questioned him as a person of interest, he didn't have any representation. And I think it's really important that we remember he was just 14 years old, had recently found the body of his girlfriend who had been brutally murdered. Luke Mitchell's police interview in August 2003 was heavily criticised by the Lord Justice General in his first full appeal in 2008, and later it was found to have breached his human rights. However, parts of it were admitted as evidence at the trial over the objection of his defence. The interview was shown to kind of show his apparent arrogance and to show that he had a temper. And I think this is something really, we'll, we will look at this in more in part two when we look at 
kind of was he guilty or innocent but this is so major this was this was evidence apparently of a 14 year old who was arrogant and had a temper and I but actually he was just confused and had no idea what was going on and actually under a lot of stress and potentially suffering PTSD if innocent obviously Which, I should yeah, caveat of course, but if of innocent course. he's just found his his girlfriend but regardless of all of that th- there are lots of 14 year old boys out there that haven't gone through this trauma if innocent um and still would display arrogance and aggression that's kind of um all part of growing up and learning what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and yeah when when thrown into this situation those are two traits that I think are completely reasonable given the circumstances if he is innocent like you say he could have been suffering from PTSD just petrified at what's going to happen am I going to be arrested for a crime well am I going to be arrested and charged for a crime that I know I have not committed And that must be a petrifying thought to have that hanging over you, as well as knowing that your girlfriend has died in brutal circumstances and you have seen her dead body that's been mutilated, for want of a better word. So, yeah, I I am not surprised at that at all. And another element that, if this is a miscarriage of justice, is really sad, is that Luke was not allowed to go to Jodie's funeral because Jodie's family felt that this could make it more of a media circus. Um... It was true when Luke went to go lay flowers at her grave, there were press filming him doing it. So if they'd have seen him at the funeral, they might have made it all about him and not Jodie. But if it is a miscarriage of justice, he couldn't go to his girlfriend's funeral, which is just really sad. So 10 months after the murder, on the 14th of April 2004, the police arrested Luke Mitchell. They didn't name Luke at the time, obviously, because of his age. However, locals definitely knew who it was. You know, if the police say a 15 year old boy who was 14 at the time, in the local area, and then you know that so-and-so's son's not around anymore, you're going to make the connection. People definitely knew who had been arrested. In my first write-up of this case, I mentioned how Luke's room smelled of ammonia when police entered it and that they found bottles of his wee in the room. Do you remember I remember, yeah. It was the first time in the show that we saw it, but over the past five years we have seen this again and again in cases. Luckily not too often, but it's always a bad sign. However, something I have since found out about this case in my research recently is that these bottles were not ones that he kept prior to Jodie's death or something he did as the norm. These were found when police searched his room after the murder. He had begun bottling his urine whilst heavily sedated because he'd found Jodie's body and was so affected. He was having a really bad time mentally, which I think must be such an understatement. He was later diagnosed with OCD And some people have said he was suffering with PTSD, which there's been no official diagnosis, but I can't disagree with the fact that he probably was. So I remember reporting on this and thinking like, God, that just adds to this picture of a weirdo and someone that potentially was the killer. But when I realised that, this was actually something that he had started to do because he was heavily sedated to try and deal with the stress. If we look at this from the side of his innocence, that that does actually kind of paint a completely different picture. Yeah, I know I know we've talked about it a lot. A lot of our listeners mention it from time to time that not in a, a bad way of, of how, you know, that we've said anything disrespectful, but I don't know, I've kind of changed my mind a bit on this because we do come across it. It's usually well, it's always a perpetrator that is bottling their own urine and I think we had the uh, shooting of Stuart Ludlam was he the taxi driver and um, he was shot by a guy and his house you know it was 
he'd been hoarding his own urine and it was like a hoarder's paradise and that that's part that can be part of that's symptomatic of OCD as well so really I think I'm much more sympathetic to this now and laugh at it a lot less because although these are potentially really bad people we we kind of do and don't know in Luke's case he has been convicted but there is that huge question mark over his guilt so that's why I'm saying we don't know whether he he did or didn't do this but regardless of that I still have a degree of sympathy for people that have done that because they've done it for a reason and they've done it usually for a bit of a fucked up reason in that they are really struggling with OCD which could be really crippling or in his case it could just be those practical reasons of I'm heavily sedated I can't get to the bathroom in time um, or I just can't be bothered to move and I'm going to have to urinate into a bottle so I do have a different take on it now and I'm trying not to just sort of uh I don't know, like, uh, sanitise my opinions on everything because I don't want to offend people. It's not about that. It's just that we've done about 250 episodes now by the time this will come out. And I just sort of think, I know that uh, you just learn so much, basically. You learn so much more and have empathy for people that you didn't think you might do in certain instances. So, yeah. And I do think that if I hadn't... if If it had been shown to be that he'd been keeping this we in his room prior to Jodie's murder I don't know that my opinion would have changed that much but the knowledge that he had done this after the fact Mm. changes that a lot for me whereas in the Stuart Ludlam case his killer I just think it's a horrible creepy thing that he did well yeah it's it's a really fascinating way to think about it though isn't it because actually yeah the killer of Stuart Ludlam um was a hoarder and that was a part of his Poor That's mental a mental health. illness, one hundred percent mental illness. So, or it's symptomatic of a mental illness. So, yeah, yeah. I, 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 this is this is a different. It's scenario. just good, isn't it, to kind of revisit some of these cases. I think it's been a really yeah, with fresh eyes, really interesting after, thing to do after two hundred plus episodes on from this to go back. This is a really interesting mm-hmm. exercise because we do look at things through a different lens. Yeah, it's very and interesting. We, we do like to be prompted to re- revisit our opinions, and um, you know. Opinions are inherently always true and always false because your own opinion is always going to be your own opinion. And I love it when I'm made to think about something in a bit of a different way. After the longest trial in Scottish history for a single person, a trial that lasted 42 days, the jury of eight women and seven men took just five hours to deliberate before finding Luke guilty. So Luke Mitchell was, on the 21st of January 2005, convicted after a trial in the High Court at Edinburgh of the murder of Jodie Jones. At the date of his conviction, he was aged 16. On the 11th of January 2005, the trial judge sentenced him to be detained without limit of time, a punishment part of 20 years being specified. He has consistently pled his innocence and continues to do so to this day. His legal team have launched numerous appeals, although he remains incarcerated. So please join us for part two in which we're going to look at some of the evidence against Luke from the trial, as well as what his supporters state in defence of his innocence. And we will see whether or not our discussions today change our opinions on his guilt. 